to Mikhail Gorbachev at the Reykjavik summit. This is a book about heartbreak. It's about the heartbreak of history. It's about what happens when people, unbeknownst to themselves, delve into the secret human infrastructure of large public events. And what do we call this? We call this history. Tom Mallon. <laughs> I didn't know what James would say, but I knew it would be lyrical and extraordinary. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. Um, Maybe I'll start with the Morris book, which you, James mentioned. Does, do you know the book James is talking about, Edmund Morris's biography, Dutch? I, James and I go back about 25 years. Uh, we uh, were both associated with GQ. James wrote tremendous pieces for the magazine, and I was the literary editor. I used to buy the fiction, and I would uh, write the books column. Uh, and in fact, I wrote a long piece on Morris's book when it came out. And uh, it was one of the most exasperating and strange biographies I had ever seen. It was an authorized biography of Reagan. He uh, was introduced to Reagan during Reagan's first term, and uh, even though a lot of the people around Reagan were suspicious of this notion, he wanted to be underfoot in the second term, to just kind of shadow Reagan and write a biography about somebody he had observed up close. Both of the Reagans uh, had read uh, Morris's books uh, on Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Morris's wife was also a biographer. She'd written a, uh, another book on uh, um, Claire Booth Luce. So they uh, permitted him to do this and Morris took forever to write this. Reagan left office in 1989 and Morris was at this book for another decade, much to the exasperation of the little lady in red across town, Mrs. Reagan, who was a formidable keeper of her husband's legacy. And when he came out with this book, it was the strangest hybrid of biography and fiction. It, uh, it was in many respects a conventionally large, big biography with tons of footnotes to it, but he also resorted to um, inventing a couple of fictional characters. And uh, he never called it a novel. It was marketed as a biography. And in most respects, it was a biography. But it was the most god-awful, unstable amalgam of forms. And the reason was that Reagan had, in many respects, defeated him. There, there was nothing. It, it was like grasping smoke, Reagan. He was a very, very unusual, odd man. The book is full of brilliant passages about Reagan, brilliant insights. There is an extended description. I have no gift for memorization. I mean, I'm astonished when I listen to James do that. Uh, you know, um, there are passages in the book that uh, so capture some aspect of this guy who was very, very elusive and peculiar. Uh, Ronald Reagan, who was so sunny, so genial, uh, in, you know, in many respects, seemed so approachable, so Irish, so, uh, you know, hail fellow well met. In other respects, was a man very, very hard to get close to. Nobody really knew him 
Even his wife, Nancy, uh, and they, you know, they had this vaunted closeness that, uh, I mean, if you didn't like Reagan, it was kind of sickening and icky sticky, Ronnie and Nancy. If you did like uh, Reagan, uh, you know, it was kind of legendary the way she could listen to the same speech a hundred times uh, and still gaze, uh, you know, up adoringly at him. But even in her memoir, she admits that there were portions of her husband that she never understood, never really got to know, could never uh, get into. He had a remote relationship with all of his children. And um, he, uh, uh, his staffers, I think, spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure him out. This is true of any organization you've ever worked in. Everybody tries to figure out the boss. Everybody wants to please the boss. Everybody, you know, wants to figure out what's going to make uh, the boss favorable to them, whatever. This happened, I think, to an inordinate degree in uh, the Reagan presidency, that the people who were around Ronald Reagan were so mystified by him in many respects. And it dated really back to the 1930s when he came to town here and went into the movies. Um, even then, there was something very, very different about him. He was not just this kind of good-looking guy who was, you know, ambitious uh, for film stardom. There was always something that was preserved, inaccessible. They used to tell stories about when he would walk onto a soundstage in the 1930s. Nobody would hear him come on. It was as if he'd almost glided uh, onto it. He was a very enigmatic man. If you liked Reagan or if you detested him, he was very hard to figure out. And yet, his success as a politician came when he was on television. He, uh, you know, had mastered that uh, ability to make you feel he was talking just to you, and he would, you know, well, and it was all very approachable and folksy and whatever. But he was, in fact, very mysterious and enigmatic. So I wanted to write a novel about this. Uh, and Morris, by not, I, you know, if, if I had been Sonny Mehta, Edmund Morris's editor, uh, what I would have done halfway through the years that Morris was writing this book was say, you know, what's going on? Are you going to do this or not? And um, if Morris had said, I, I, I don't know what to do, I can't get at him somehow in any sustained way, I would have said, dump the biography, write a novel. I'm glad he didn't, because it sort of left the field clear. Um, but what I wanted to do with him was um, try to somehow uh, get two things. One, a suggestion of what he was like, and then also a portrait of the times. The, uh, the, book is, the subtitle of the book is Finale, a novel of the Reagan years, uh, because I don't pretend that I could finally pierce this mystery of Reagan. So I was trying to show a portrait of Washington and to some extent the country in that time. The novel I'd written before this was... Uh, a book about the Watergate scandal. It was a fictionalization of that. And so uh, the bridge figure between the two books is Richard Nixon. Uh, Nixon in the mid-80s when the Reagan novel is set is still this elder statesman in exile. He's still uh, searching for redemption, respectability, whatever. And he um, has very mixed feelings about Ronald Reagan, which he did in life. Early in the novel, he thinks of Reagan as the luckiest son of a bitch since Coolidge. You know, I mean, who seemed to effortlessly accomplish things like getting himself elected governor of California that Richard Nixon had not been able to do. Uh, Nixon thought that Reagan was a pretty boy. 
you know, like Jack Kennedy, his nemesis. And um, as time went on, Nixon uh, developed a a good deal of uh, respect for Reagan. They were on the telephone a lot. I wish we had tapes of those conversations, uh, but we don't. Thanks, of course, to Richard Nixon, because the, the idea of presidential tapes became an impossibility after Nixon lost the presidency because of keeping the tapes. But there are records that they were on the phone quite a lot. And I mean, in, um, uh, Reagan goes to China in 1984, and so he talks to Nixon before the trip. And you can kind of imagine what that conversation would have been like. You know, Nixon, the geopolitical chess player, telling him, you know, Ron, you got to tell him to keep three divisions on the Manchurian border against the Soviets, and you got to tell him to do this with the currency, whatever. And I, I think Reagan would sometimes exasperate Nixon because Reagan was, if ever there was a big picture person, it was Reagan, whereas Nixon was by instinct a micromanager, even when he was being bold. And the only record that we have of the conversation, aside from that it took place, is Reagan's diary. Uh, which is not uh, generally very revealing, um, very sweet-natured in a lot of ways, but he's keeping it still when he takes the China trip. And the first night he's in China, they have the first big banquet, and he said, we followed some great advice we got from Dick Nixon about the banquets. When they pass around the food, don't ask what it is. Just take it and swallow. <laughs> and... Uh, so you sort of see the you know the uh, temperamental differences uh, you know between them, but I I wanted to write um, these James mentioned these fictional characters Anders Little and Anne McMurray, which is generally how historical fiction proceeds. You throw a group of made up characters into the midst of a lot of these real life uh, figures. So there are all of these um, people who actually existed. Uh, Nancy Reagan is a major character in the book, uh, even. Merv Griffin, uh, as uh, James was saying, uh, Pamela Harriman, who was the widow of Averill Harriman, who was uh, a great and rich hostess in Washington in this period, and is organizing the Democrats uh, to retake the Senate in 1986. My uh, old pal Hitchens, uh, all of the big figures in the Reagan administration, the cabinet officers, the Gene Kirkpatrick, his UN ambassador, Don Regan, his chief of staff, who was Nancy Reagan's mortal enemy in the White House. They are all in the book. And what they all do sort of is circle Reagan. And uh, they are all trying to figure him out at what is the lowest point in his presidency. Um, the, uh, it's 1986 for most of this. And everything is falling apart. I mean, two years before Reagan had his landslide victory over Walter Mondale carried 49 states, um, including New York, which has never happened to a Democratic candidate, uh, to a Republican candidate since. And, um, but by 86, uh, all of these new social ills are upon the land, uh, homelessness, crack, AIDS. Uh, the administration seems sort of out of gas. Uh, its foreign policy is uh, highly suspect what's going on in Central America. And the climax, in some ways, of the book is the summit that Reagan has in Iceland with Mikhail Gorbachev in that little white frame house in Reykjavik in the fall of 86, where the two of them almost agree to abolish nuclear weapons 
in the space of 10 years. And it falls apart, the deal, because Reagan will not give up the Strategic Defense Initiative, what was called Star Wars. You know, the uh, system, the missile system, laser system that would uh, deflect incoming missiles. American liberals thought this was a fantasy, uh, but the Soviets were sufficiently worried about it so that they were not going to agree to get rid of any of their weaponry unless Star Wars research went with it. Reykjavik, in the fullness of time, came to look very good for Reagan. People would say, well, by refusing to make the deal in the end, Gorbachev had to go home, they spent themselves into a death spiral, and then there was no more Soviet Union after 91. You know, that was more than anybody was ever expecting uh, was going to happen. That is not a unanimously held historical view, but there there are strong arguments to be made on Reagan's behalf uh, for that view. But at the time, Reykjavik is perceived as one more fiasco. And the Democrats do retake the Senate, and then as soon as they retake the Senate, Iran-Contra happens. And once Iran-Contra happens, uh, there's talk of impeachment in the air, and Reagan is likely to uh, you know, maybe even have to give up the White House the same way that Nixon did. And then he sort of um, comes out of it. Um, my feelings about Ronald Reagan as I was living the 80s when I was in my 30s, were wildly mixed, which I think is a good prescription for writing a novel. Uh, nobody wants to read a novel that's reverent about anybody or anything. I mean, that, I mean can you imagine? And say, Buy this novel. The novelist, he's so reverent toward his characters. Nobody wants that. Um, and yet... Um, just as I didn't want to make Nixon into a mustache-twirling villain when I wrote the Watergate book, I wanted to see things sympathetically, if I could. I wanted to try to get my complicated feelings about Reagan uh, onto the page. I was a very big supporter of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. I do think, I do subscribe to the historical um, school of thought that says that Reagan's pushing on the Soviet Union... Um, aggressive pushing, uh, not just the usual peaceful coexistence that was sought by uh, many previous presidents, was consequential, that it did accelerate the end of the Cold War on our terms. Uh, I do think Reagan has tremendous credit to uh, himself uh, for that. There were other things I was not happy about. I was living in New York uh, in the 1980s. Uh, a lot of my friends were getting sick. We were burying them and we were waiting for a kind word from the president about AIDS. Uh, his record was not very good. A uh, couple of bright spots, Dr. Coop, his Surgeon General, but um, it was a very slow response to say the least. And there were um, there were th times when I, I experienced exasperation uh, with Reagan. And the character that James mentioned, Anders, it, 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 who's very unlike me in most respects, but he is my mouthpiece for certain things. And uh, he, he gets into arguments with Hitchens uh, in the book, uh, Hitchens who detested Reagan until the day he died. Uh, and Anders, um, you know... Uh, Hitchens is wondering how Anders, a gay man, can possibly be on the National Security Council, and even to the point where he's involved in these Central American uh, adventures that cause the Iran-Contra scandal. And Anders uh, says, uh, I'm willing to wait in line for my freedom. 
at one point. And I used to argue with my gay friends in uh, New York uh, in the 1980s that, you know, as rough as things were, the average heterosexual in Poland is a lot less free than we are. And no, I don't like Reagan's domestic policies across the board, but fundamentally he was on the side of freedom, and fundamentally in the long run he was on my side. Uh, if the world were freer, less dangerous, everybody was going to be freer. I think that happened to some extent. But, uh, you know, so Anders is, Anders is caught betwixt and between, you know, and um, as I was in the 80s. And I think that was actually, um, that was helpful to me in writing the novel because it, it to um, mixed feelings are easier to dramatize than fully one-sided feelings, you know, uh, being all for or all against something. So that was one of the things I was trying to do uh, in the novel, too, was not just recreate the 80s in a kind of panoramic way, but recreate my 1980s, recreate what the 80s had been to me. And the biggest difference, and then I will shut up and we'll just talk amongst ourselves, the biggest um, difference between the two books is that... uh, I don't know what it says about my moral character, but I never felt any difficulty in writing Richard Nixon from the inside out, in in making him a point of view character, you know, um, where, uh, you know, you write in the close third person and you see things as the character would have seen them. There are echoes of the character's voices, the thought process, whatever. I never felt trouble inhabiting Nixon. But within a week of starting this book, I knew that I was never going to try to see Reagan from the inside out for the exact same reasons that Edmund Morris experienced. When I tried it, I couldn't grasp him. Uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, his UN ambassador, is a character in the book. She says Reagan is smoke at one point uh, to somebody. And uh, she describes him as uh, the most um, warmly impersonal man she had ever met. And I I just knew I couldn't see him from the inside out. So what I tried to do in this book technically was to adopt a... um, uh, the, the scheme that Gore Vidal... Uh, used to use in some of his historical novels, particularly his novel Lincoln. Uh, I used to edit Vidal. At, I never got to el- edit Elroy uh, at GQ. That w- fell to David Granger, but I used to edit Gore Vidal. I used to write essays from time to time for the magazine. And um, what he does in Lincoln is he never gets inside Lincoln's head. He gets inside the heads of about a half dozen other characters around Lincoln, and then the reader has to decide to either synthesize those points of view, to reject some of them, to say, oh, maybe it's Seward who has Lincoln right. And there's some of that uh, that takes place uh, in this book. But I um, I would have to say that uh, Reagan remains, for me, um, a big, mysterious figure. And uh, whereas Nixon, Nixon, if Reagan was smoke, Nixon was nothing but edges. You could grab onto Nixon in a hundred different places. Um, but that, that was the biggest challenge in a way, to write a book that was to some extent about a protagonist who most of the time wasn't there. Um, and um, I don't have James's lyrical gifts, uh, and, and I don't I don't have James's um, single-mindedness. I have a lot of admiration uh, for Ronald Reagan, but also a, a lot of um, ambivalence about certain things, and that's that's what I hoped to dramatize in the book. 
Um, that was an incredibly long-winded um, and not terribly well-organized uh, presentation, but uh, we can maybe clean it up uh, by listening to questions you have or things you want to say. We're listening, audience. <laughs> this, um, ask him something. No, uh, no, <laughs> no I'm the announcer. Yeah. Hmm? Something that, that just ultimately blew your mind about Reagan? That, how I wasn't expecting this? Um, well, or, you know, well, as he would say, there, I mean, the, um, there were specific things that uh, uh, would surprise me um, a lot. Uh, the, um, for instance, I mean, I, they, I, I don't want to overstate the presence of AIDS in the book, but it, it is certainly there. Uh, as it would have to be in any novel about the 80s. But the little, sometimes the little things you discover in your research really stun you. And one of them was that uh, early in 1987, Reagan had the AIDS test, um, which was early, before I had it. Um, most of my friends had had it. And I, I was astonished to see this. Um, it was recommended by Dr. Hutton, the White House physician, uh, who told uh, Nancy that he wanted Reagan to have the AIDS test because Reagan had received so much transfused blood in 1981 after the shooting, after the Hinckley shooting. John Hinckley is another character uh, in the book as well. And um, he's always trying to get his way out of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which he has succeeded to a great extent in doing. He is out on a pass on furlough a lot these days. Um, but um, that kind of thing would surprise me. Uh, there were stories that, you know, that would just am amaze uh, me about Reagan. I, I mentioned he was not a detailed uh, person. He goes off to one of the G8 summits, the big economic summits, and uh, he gets on the plane, and Don Regan, the chief of staff, can see that he has not cracked the briefing book from that he was supposed to read over the weekend and because Reagan has this kind of sheepish schoolboy look on his face and and he sees that Regan is kind of steamed with him that you know you're not going to be prepared for this and he says you know well Don what could I do the sound of music was on TV last night and you would see these guileless things you know um, and yet um whether you liked it or not, it was a consequential, transformative presidency. There were, there were times when I would wonder, how did that happen? Uh, some of it happened by the force of personality. The, uh, as I say, these other people trying to figure him out, trying to do his bidding. Um, I was... Um, so I, I, I think it was specific things that uh, um, surprised me. And one of the, one of the things that... Um, I came to conclude that I didn't expect to conclude was that Nancy didn't understand him any better than anybody else. Uh, that uh, it, it was not just a matter of her saying, oh, there were places, uh, parts of him that I couldn't get to, whatever. I, I think for all of the... You, you can be very close to somebody. You can live with somebody for 40 years and be absolutely intimate with them and still not know them. And I think that that um, was actually true of the two of them. She, um, I think that uh, it, it doesn't diminish the connection between them, but I, I think that that was very uh, um, much a part of it. Uh, yeah, you said you had mixed feelings during Reagan's presidency uh, and how that's your entry point into this novel, however, being a couple decades mm -hmm. after the fact. Were there any points where you realized how your perspective on 
him changed and how did that affect your writing? Were you still trying to stay in your 30-year-old self with mixed feelings while yeah. Um, I was spending so much of my time trying to see you know when I talk about point of view characters writing from the inside out so I'm, a lot of the book is what is Hitchens thinking what is Pamela Harriman thinking what is Nancy thinking so that automatically subordinates you the author you're always there somewhere but um, but over time um, the uh, uh, I think my my basic mixed feelings, the mixture of them sort of held up. Mm-hmm. I, I was not utterly won over to one side. I didn't, on, on the other hand, I certainly didn't turn against Reagan in right. writing the book. But, I mean, my, um, I just found, you're, most of you are way too young to remember, but I found the Carter administration difficult uh, to live through. Um, because I was, I had been raised as a, a little cold warrior, you know, um, uh, Catholic kid growing up, and we, we were kind of the super Americans, you know, listening to Bishop Sheen and Cardinal Spellman and all of the rest. And um, I, I just found the Carter years, for all of the president's good intentions, President Carter's good intentions, to be just rock bottom. I just everything was coming apart. Uh, the Soviets were on the march through Africa, Central America. Who knew where next. The economy was collapsing. Uh, crime was very high. And the, the president just seemed so scared of his own job. Um, and Reagan, uh, who devoted much less time to the job than Carter did, was very bracing and interesting when he came along. One figure that he mirrored in my mind, to some extent, from the 80s, and it was uh, the, the same kind of transition from one mayor to another, one president to another, was Ed Koch in New York. Uh, Ed Koch was a colossal pain in the ass. As a mayor, a lot of people couldn't stand him, but he was not afraid of the job. You know, he had a lot of chutzpah, and he followed Abe Beam, who always seemed to me like Jimmy Carter, overwhelmed the city, I mean, in New York, you know, in the 70s, was just crashing down around everyone's ears. And Koch was a tremendous tonic for... Um, the city just by not being afraid of the job, just by mixing it up with people. I mean, everybody's talking about Trump. I mean, I remember, you know, the young Trump in 1980, the 80s, was making his fortune in New York, you know, and he would, uh, the first big building he built was the Grand Hyatt Hotel near Grand Central Station. And New York was so flat on its back that he got this unbelievable tax break from the city to build the building because nobody was building in New York. Nobody wanted to locate in New York or whatever. He built the building. Then the city really starts to roar back. And he wants to make another deal for another big project years later with Koch. And uh, they... um, uh, and he want, so he wants the same tax break. And Koch refuses to give it to him because the city's in a much better bargaining position. And so at a Koch press conference, one of the reporters asks uh, Koch, what do you think about Mr. Trump's insistence that he get the same tax break as last time? And Koch's response to the reporter was, piggy, piggy, piggy. You know, and um, and that was, um, that kind of uh, fearlessness and sim. Simplicity, which is not the same as being simplistic. I think I, I think Reagan did, did have moments like that. And they asked Reagan early on, before he was even president, what's your view of the Cold War? And he said, we win, they lose. That to me was very bracing and thrilling uh, after four years of Jimmy Carter. 
Um, so, um, uh, so I, certain opinions I had got reinforced, certain ones um, got modified, whatever. But uh, I, I, I didn't want to be totally converted to one side or the other because I, I, I thought that um, the mixed feelings were, from a novelist's point of view, inherently more dramatic. No. I'm sorry, my, all those peas I know were exploding, those plosives. Piggy, piggy, piggy. Can I actually segue off that answer? Sure. Uh, mm. So you talked, you've kind of talked about your own political views, and so I guess there's a question for both of you gentlemen, because I know um, we're in Los Angeles, a place where conservative is like a dirty word, and it can be aggressively liberal. Uh, how do you, as writers, can you talk about uh, writing about conservative topics in a traditionally liberal media landscape, and what's that like? You want it? My books are set in the American 1940s, so I am both determinedly anti-fascist and anti-communist because in 1939, Hitler got in bed with Uncle Joe Stalin, the commies, and the Nazis. My two bete noirs politically were in bed together, and I write from the perspective in the new series of books that I'm doing of World War II entirely. I don't proselytize. You obviously know that I greatly admire Ronald Reagan, and I think with fewer qualifications than Tom Mallon does. But I write fiction. I'm not a contemporaneous polemicist in any way. And I don't want people saying, yeah, all right, he's this, 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 this. Yeah, that discredits these books written 70-odd years ago. I, I mean, I write a lot of nonfiction as well. I write a lot of criticism, a lot of essays, and mostly for liberal publications. I write a lot for the New Yorker, write for the Times Book Review, whatever. And um, I, uh, I mean, I tend to be a more, I, I tend to be a fairly temperate fellow. Anyway, I mean, I love being with James. James is like my id, you know, <laughs> unleashed uh, in some ways. But uh, <laughs> the, um, you know, um, but it is. Um, it is, uh, uh, I can't say I've ever suffered much from it. I mean, I started my career, I wrote a lot for National Review, conservative magazine, Buckley's magazine, and, uh, and then, um, you know, would began getting assignments from these, what were much bigger publications and, you know, places one wanted to be as a young writer, like the Times and the New Yorker and so forth. And, um, you know, I... Um, uh, the literary establishment is a fairly unified place, um, and um, I, I've had my difficult moments over the years. There are subjects I won't attempt writing about, you know, for the New Yorker because I just think that it's just going to be thankless. They're not going to want what I have to say. But they've also been very generous to me. I mean, and and have said to me that you know it's good we. You know, uh, we need uh, a little bit more of a different viewpoint, a little bit of variety in the magazine, because you know it can be a bit of an echo chamber. Uh, I mean, you know, for the sensibilities of this, the Upper West Side in New York, say, um, and so I've been able to, you know, steer through that. Um, uh, I, I would say that life in 
life uh, in amidst the liberal media has been less vexing to me than my part-time life in academia, uh, which is just, uh, in many respects, a cloud cuckoo land to me of um, uh, uh, orthodoxy. And um, Interesting, though, in that you cannot always predict somebody's academic politics based on their larger politics. I have a lot of liberal friends uh, whose general politics are much more liberal than mine who... uh, are uh, also gnashing their teeth over um, the uh, extreme um, fidgetiness and correctness and uh, of the American Academy, and they um, uh, they want you know they tend to be people who support core curriculums and great books and things like that, and that sort of makes it um, kind of uh, bearable. But I I wouldn't say that I mean I. I, I I get identified as a conservative writer a lot, which is actually interesting to me in that, it, it, I mean, it certainly is true in many ways. I can see why. And my literary sensibilities tend to be conservative in form and uh, so forth. But um, it, it's not an indication so much that my um, uh, politics are very far off in one direction. They're really not. I mean, but uh, in terms of the general population, but in terms of the literary population, they're enough to the right that I look freaky uh, to people. And um, But I've lived most of my life in, in big liberal cities, whatever. One of the things that, that to me, though, is really interesting, having spent all these years, and this is a question for you or anybody who are all residents here, is how did the state that produced Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, these two guys that I've been spent the last half dozen years writing about, um, who were elected to the presidency four times. You know, how did this state become a graveyard for Republicans? Uh, it, to me, this is, is amazing because uh, the, the Republican Party cannot go on forever writing off California in presidential elections. I mean, you can't begin every presidential election and, uh, by saying, well, those first 50-plus electoral votes, they're guaranteed for the Democrats. Um, uh, even if Texas, you know, stays a red state, which it may not. Texas is getting a little more blue than California is getting red. But how did California, I mean, you know, just down the road in your Belinda, where I came from, you know, and uh, Reagan, eight, uh, eight years in Sacramento, and uh, so how did this happen in California? Is I mean, it's, it, 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 people say demographics and whatever, but is that too simple an answer? I don't know. I'm, 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 to me, this is a big mystery politically. Um, Beats me, Tom. Hmm? Beats me. I remember the, the golden days, though, of the early 1960s when I was a young misanthrope about town and I had my Who is John Galt? Ayn Rand bumper sticker wow. in my car. <laughs> wow. But I didn't have insurance for my car, and it wasn't registered. And I would go over to the Pan Pacific Auditorium to see Ayn Rand's protege, Andrew J. Galambos, give talks about his Free Enterprise Institute. And I was a member of VIVA, the Victory in Vietnam Association, and the YAF, the Young Americans for Freedom. And... 
I used to deliver newspapers to John Schmitz. Raise your hand if you remember John Schmitz. Well, he was infamously <laughs> the father of that Pervo woman, Mary Kay Laterno, who was banging the 12 year old junior high school boy. <laughs> so. You had your chief antecedents, and I had mine, and I think we're both lucky to be here. I love it. I, whenever I sit next to James, I feel like Walter Mondale. You know, I mean, the the hardcore, the true believer. But I no, I I really um, um, th- this to me is um, certainly if Nixon or Reagan were around. Um, I, they would be, I think, absolutely astonished to see the electoral situation in California. I'm not sure it's, I mean, whatever one's politics are, I'm not sure it's really great for California uh, to have, um, to become essentially a one-party state. I mean, I know that part of the congressional delegation, you know, uh, depending on the district, I know California still sends Republicans to the House, but the idea that the, the governorship, uh, even with Arnold as a bit of an interregnum, the idea that the governorship and the Senate seats look, you know, sort of perpetually Democratic now, and uh, that most of the elected state offices, you know, uh, and judges and whatever, um, I, it, it, the collapse of the Republican Party in California it, it is sort of astonishing to me, and uh, you know, it's had a tremendous um, effect um, on American politics. The gentleman in the back. Would you say the, the- Changing of the political side of California had to do with maybe uh, Dean Wilson's membership, particularly on immigration issues. Yeah, yeah I, I I think so. I mean, uh, I mean, certainly the the numbers will show that um, you know uh, the Republicans have uh, shot themselves in the foot uh, an awful lot. Um, but it, it still surprises me that the that the changes would be so permanent as they appear yeah. to have been. You know, um, and that you can't, and that there are not Republicans who could come along who can sort of thread the needle, you know, with uh, with uh, an immigration policy that um, is sufficiently appealing to, uh, you know, get uh, a- enough of the Hispanic vote and uh, liberal vote and so forth to be competitive again. Might that be indicative of, like, the Republican Party's current issues, namely, like, getting the Latino vote or trying to get the black vote? I know that's been a... Reagan, yeah, I mean, Reagan had no success at all getting the black vote, certainly. Right. Um, although, and you know, one of the things that's interesting about his diaries is he will there. Um, he he meets uh, at some point with a, an NAACP leader who's been doing battle with him, um, and uh, they have a meeting in the Oval Office, and you know. Um, bef- within five minutes of the meeting, the person he's met with is at the microphones uh, on the you know north lawn of the White House, excoriating him again. And that night, Reagan is writing in his diary about the meeting. Well, I think I made a friend, you know. Um, but he had no luck, uh, no success with the black vote. But I do think that he, um, Re- I, th- I do think that Reagan's. Uh, personality was extremely winning toward um, a lot of people who were coming to the country in the 80s. I mean, I have had, when I've done signings for this book, I have had people from South Asia uh, in particular, and a lot of other spots talk about 
I came here in 1985, and uh, you know, Reagan was, uh, he was, uh, you know, this kind of um, iconic figure, uh, very appealing, uh, whatever. Uh, that just doesn't happen anymore. There's no figure like that uh, who has that appeal um, uh, for people who are coming. Uh, to the states on the you know on the Republican side, I, nothing lasts forever in politics. But uh, the situation in California is, um, and they pretend it doesn't exist. You know the Republicans that just, um, uh, but you know you're not going to see any of them next year. I mean, whoever is the candidate, they're not going to come through California. They're not going to waste any money and any campaign days here. And um, to me, that's kind of crazy. That uh, um, and they have to know that they cannot survive that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, this time, I, yeah. Yeah, sir? You, boss. Sir? What, yeah. What do you make of the current Republican field? Or the ones that are leading are the ones that are not identified as traditional Republican candidates? Should I let my id talk about this? Uh, you'll get, you'll, you'll get a, a, certainly a, a more provocative answer. No, it's nothing you haven't heard before. But I would like to comment on Ronald Reagan and race. And if black voters didn't vote for Ronald Reagan en masse, that was their loss. And here's a story that says a great deal about Ronald Reagan and race and his naivete and his utter absence of racial animus. Reagan attended Eureka College between 1928 and 1932. And very brave man. Despite severe myopia, he served as a lifeguard on the Rock River and saved 77 people from drowning. He was also on the football team, and he was a frail and weak halfback, crippled again by myopia. The team went traveling. There was a star player, a black man. I believe the man's name was Franklin Bardwell. He lived into Reagan's presidency. In fact, I think he died in 84 or 85. It was 1930. It was the height of Jim Crow all throughout America, not just the South. Team went traveling. They hit Des Moines. White hotel keepers would not let Franklin Bardwell bunk with the team. And the black player knew it, the one, this man, the star center. All the white players knew it as well. The only man who didn't on the team was Ronald Reagan. He was heedless. He was naive. Who was the only one who acted bravely. It was Ronald Reagan. His naivete was shattered. He was the one who evinced moral outrage. He was the one who demanded at a succession of hotels that these people put up Franklin Barnwell. They failed to do so. He went out, spent the entire night finding lodging for this man and then ended up crapping out on the floor with him at the pad that they ultimately found. It's up to
to the individual to sense greatness, to sense the components of greatness, and reach beyond their individual, doctrinaire, party-affiliated, hidebound prejudice and see greatness where it lives. Franklin Bardwell, rest in peace. Ronald Reagan, rest in peace. I told you you'd get the more lyrical and provocative answer you get from me. I, you know, I do think, I mean, it, it, again, I, I keep comparing Nixon and Reagan because, you know, the two of them have been on my mind so much in the last years. I mean, uh, Nixon's domestic policies were much more liberal uh, than Reagan's, but I, I think it's true that um, uh, Reagan was much less crippled by any prejudices than Nixon was. I mean, Nixon uh, uh, was cursed with anti-Semitism uh, and uh, to a lesser degree uh, racial prejudice but uh, he, in a sense he fought against them within himself uh, certainly in policy terms um, but um, a, another thing about Reagan too that I, I think one reason I sort of felt I could even if I couldn't enter into his personality couldn't turn him into a point of view character but uh, one of the reasons I think I was predisposed to um, try to understand him politically was that he had traveled the exact same political route that my father did uh, and uh, my father was a lovely genial extremely funny uh, man who had started life like Reagan as a new dealer he voted for Franklin Roosevelt three times uh, he would have voted for him in 32 but he wasn't old enough yet and um, uh, and then in the 50s moved to the right uh, you know uh, always voted uh, Republican, certainly from like 56 on, uh, through Nixon, uh, and he he died a week before Reagan won the New Hampshire primary in 1980, which was, I think, one of the cruelest things that ever happened, because he was, you know, very much for Reagan. But he... Um, he had gone that same route and had talked to me about um, how... Um, uh, from his point of view, Franklin Roosevelt who always remained a hero to him, and Roosevelt was to him uh, the savior of capitalism. That you know, Roosevelt had uh, by by creating the safety net, letting the steam out. Uh, Roosevelt had prevented a revolution in the United States and had allowed uh, you know the fundamentals of capitalism to survive by reforming it. And he he always reverenced uh, Reagan. Uh, he reverenced Roosevelt, as did Reagan. Uh, Mrs. Roosevelt was, was another story uh, by the time the 1950s and 60s were there. But I think that, um, that gave me a certain kind of uh, feeling for Reagan uh, since I had seen this in my father. It, uh, happening actually a little earlier uh, than Reagan because uh, Reagan, um, I don't believe he registers in the Republican Party until 1962. I think he's still a Democrat. He, he was involved in Democrats for Nixon in 1960. So um, that kind of um, added into that ambivalence I was talking about as something that was useful. All right, our host. Um, well, thank you very much. It was a really lovely evening. Thank you. The man. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.